All right, let's take a moment to pray. God, thank you for um, this opportunity we have to pause in our mornings and our week and to um, reflect on um, your movement in our lives. Um, God, we want to confess that we don't often spend time during the week to just sit with you and to listen to your voice and um, to allow you to speak to us. And so that's our desire this morning, God. I'm going to be speaking, God, but I, I do pray for your spirit to be the one speaking, God. Would you open our hearts, each of us, uh, individually? Would you open our hearts collectively um, to how you are speaking to us through this word from Romans 7? And as you do speak, God, we thank you that you do speak. Uh, we thank you that you're alive today that you're changing and transforming the world. We, we specifically do want to pray, God, for communities, especially the ones in Southern California that are being torn apart. Uh, we thank you that you're alive in the midst of that. Um, the fear that people are experiencing, the loss they're, fe- they're feeling, um, we thank you that you are greater than these things and that you're renewing the earth. Um, we long for that, God, and so we wait in patience for you to do so pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, well, hey, uh, my name's Jack. It's good to see some faces I haven't seen for a little while. I, I was having this experience early in worship, like I don't get to see a lot of you except this time during the week each week, and so um, I take that for granted, but it's good to see familiar and some unfamiliar faces. So if you're unfamiliar, if I haven't met you, I'd love to do that. I'd love to meet you and put a face with a name, so thanks for coming to Bethany. Um, we're coming into the middle of uh, this series I mentioned in Romans. We're coming, obviously, down the, the home stretch of 2018. And as um, I've been doing that, I can't believe it's almost the end of the year. Uh, I've been kind of reviewing my goals for the year. And I don't know if you're like me, but you began, if you began the year with resolutions and goals and things you hope to accomplish, like spiritual goals, health goals, goals around work and leadership and family. How many of you guys set goals? Good. Few of you will resonate with this. Um, you might be curious as you come to the end of the year, like, how am I doing on those goals? If they weren't just resolutions that you you dropped by January 9th or 10th, like, did I s- achieve what I set out to achieve? Right. And uh, so our family did these things called vision boards. Maybe you've done this at the beginning of the year. My uh, my wife found this, or Lamar and my daughter found this in a magazine or something. And this idea of kind of setting goals, but in a way that was um, visual and inviting. And, and so my wife created this cool one that sits next to her bed. And I actually asked permission. She's here. If I could show this, I'd steal it off her bedstand. And I'm like, I should probably ask if I can share that. And the reason I, and so this is kind of her deal and it, it is to help her, you know, kind of move toward her goals. It's not the actual goals, but to help her move that direction. And the reason I wanted to show you Elizabeth is because, uh, you know, here's my notebook, my, my journal. And, uh, and I did the same thing reluctantly. And here's mine. You can barely see it, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not the most abstract thinker in the world. Very, very concrete. So I had like six buckets, parenting, family, health, fitness, relationship, intimacy, wisdom, skills, and knowledge, leadership, vision, and travel adventures. So I had some goals there. And I was curious, you know, coming into the middle of November here, like, how am I doing on this thing? And, and did I achieve what I set to achieve? And um, as I looked at this, surprisingly, I shouldn't be surprised. Surprisingly little was very was accomplished on this this deal. For example, um, under wisdom, skills, and knowledge, I, I set out to read 18 books in 2018. 
And actually, on the next page, um, I have the list of books. And I checked off one. Um, actually, there's 21 there, which shows you how bad I am at math. And then um, I've, I think I've read one, maybe two. I've, I've started six others, which are sitting in our house. And the rest I haven't even bought yet. So that's how I'm doing on that goal. And so the question that that kind of, and there's other goals too, uh, the question I ask myself is, why did I feel so badly at that goal? Like, what? I love books. And Elizabeth will tell you I'm constantly buying books. It's not the books I intended to buy. And um, could it be that my goal was just too high? Like, you think 18 books. Woo, that's ambitious. Maybe I was a little over-optimistic about my ability to read books. Could it be like I lack the discipline to read? Like, Audible sends me this free book every month on my Prime membership. And so, man, listening to books at one and a half times the speed is a lot easier. But that doesn't count as reading. I'll just tell you that right now. Okay? Um, could it be I just spent too much time on my bike? I had set out a goal to ride 4,000 miles this year. I'd, I hadn't ridden as much as I prefer, as I used to ride. So I'm like, I'm going to ride more this year, 4,000 miles. To date, I've ridden almost 7,000 miles this year. I'm, I might hit 8,000 miles. It could be that I just ride my bike too much. Like, I could, I could ratchet that down a little bit and spend a little more time just balancing my life, you know, like riding a little less, hanging out with my family a little more. My wife would probably love that. Um, it could be that I lack, I have the inability to master my impulse control. Like, watching Netflix and cat videos is just more interesting than reading books. I mean, I'll give that to you. Like, cat, have you guys watched cat videos before? Like, just on your Instagram feed, just do that. I mean, it will suck you in. And I don't even have a cat. And I don't even like cats that much. So there's all these reasons. And all we should say, there's this massive gap between our intentions and our actions, which is true for all of us in many different ways. It could be voting. You intended to vote. The ballot's there. It's prepaid. And yet, it never left your desk. I barely got it out the door on Monday or Tuesday, whatever day it was. I did it. I voted. Um, it could be healthy eating, it could be exercise, it could be reading books, it could be whatever. And the consequence of which is, in technical terms, is that we end up in, go ahead and show this, um, click, kill that slide, show this slide. In technical terms, it's called the abyss of stuckness. This is a real thing. It's on the internet. I found it on the internet. It's, I know it's kind of a low grain. I think some, like, fourth grader created this thing, but it's true. So there's a great intention, great outcome, and yet we find ourselves stuck in this not-so-great reality, this abyss of stuckness, stuck in the gap between our intentions and our envisioned outcomes. I mean, how many of you, this is true, like you set out for, yes, you're in the abyss of stuckness. Now, why am I telling you this, other than just happy Sunday? Well, in Romans 7, Paul tells us that the abyss of stuckness is the same with the life of faith. Romans 7, verse 19, 18, 19, I have the desire, deep desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. There it is, the abyss of stuckness. 2,000 years ago. I can aspire and envision the right, but I don't find myself with the actual power and to execute on the right. I just can't do it. There's, so there's a deep gap in the human heart, that's what he's talking about, between our intentions on, on one end, what we know to be the good, right? Whatever the good is, and then our actions on the other end, okay? And we all face this gap at one time or another in our lives. We, for example, we know that God's for us. We're told this Hundreds of times in the Bible, I'm for you, I'm for you, I'm for you. And yet we do not live out of that belief functionally most days of our lives. We, don't, we not only don't believe that God's good, but we believe that God's against us. And so then we don't really believe that God's for us and we fear others. We let out the fear of man or humans. We're anxious, we lack hope, we lack confidence, we lack courage. 
which on our worst days can be this downward spiral of fear and shame. On most days, the abyss of stuckness looks like lack of joy, lack of peace, lack of direction, mired in doubt, right? And that's just one example. And thus, there's this stuckness in our lives, lives of faith that we all experience at one time or another, between our intentions, our hopes, our desires, what we hope faith looks like, and then where we actually find ourselves, our actions, our attitudes, how we're actually living our lives, right? And today what I want to do with you is explore that gap, the, the abyss of stuckness a little bit, between our intentions and our actions that's existed for thousands of years, and yet is hampering our growth and preventing us from being and becoming the people that God desires us to be, okay? To that end, we're going to consider three questions, uh, what, why, and how, or what, why, what, how, excuse me, and, and, and they're listed in your bulletin. Um, if you don't have a bulletin, here's the, it's going to be a little bit like a sandwich, okay? So Romans, Romans 7, uh, we're going to look at why the, this gap in verses 18 to 20, and then what, 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 um, what not to do, actually, to kind of achieve, to get over the gap in verses 7 to 12, and then we're going to skip to the end of the chapter, verses 21 to 25, how, okay? And so if you're, um, if you're gluten-free, the meat is in the middle. That's the why. Um, 18 to 20, I spend most of my time there. If you're vegan, I don't know. Sorry. 7 to 12, pay attention then. But anyway, the beginning, the longest, that's the meat, okay? So chew on this. Why the gap exists, verses 18 to 20. Um, why don't we do what we want to do when it comes to faith? Whether that's live with more courage in the face of a trial, or act justly in the face of injustice, or exhibit joy in the face of fear and doubt? Like, why? And Paul says, verse 20, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that's dwelling within me. So right there, that's an amazing statement. Paul gives us the why. Because he's saying there's a me, there's me. If I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it. There's me, but something in me. And that something is sin, okay? Which I'll just say is not a popular conversation to have today, like with, especially even with churches. We don't like to talk about sin, like most of you. It's sin and it's money. Oh, I wish I'd known I wouldn't have come to church today. And, and, and we don't like the word. We especially don't like the word when it's talking about us. Like, we don't want to talk about our sin. We'll talk about our shortcomings, our failures. We have euphemisms like slip-ups, flaws, weaknesses. But when you talk about sin, it's a sort of archaic and harsh word. Like, why? don't talk about my sin. Um, in fact, Eugene Peterson, he says this in one place in one of his books, the taxonomy of sin in Scripture is merciless. Debts, evil, wickedness, trespass, unrighteousness, guilt, transgression, impiety, disobedience, rebellion, alienation. He says there's over 50 words in the Old and New Testaments for sin, all of them like a punch to the gut to remind us of the state in which we live. Now, I want to press this a little bit further because I'm afraid when you hear the word sin, you not only don't like it, sin or evil, but we snap immediately, we're tempted to snap toward behavior. We think of sin as, as misbehavior. Now, really quick, I want to uh, ask you this question. You know, we think of sin as stealing, lying, or cheating, as corporate corruption or abuse of power. And while those may indeed be, quote-unquote, sins, the biblical concept of sin is more insidious than merely misbehavior. So think about this. When I ask you to think of the origin, origin of sin, I've talk, and I've talked about this before, but what was the, the original sin, the first sin? Think about this. Is it misbehavior? Is it lying, cheating, and stealing? Um, or is it something else? And, and you see, what we normally think about sin, say about sin, is that it's some sort of misbehavior. 
we think of the original sin, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, eating the so-called forbidden fruit, right? That's what we think. But was that their first sin? Was that the sin? See, look at Genesis 3 sometime carefully. And what you're going to find is when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and there's this place in Genesis 3, they're walking around, they come to the tree of knowledge, right? And of course, there's this fruit in that tree that they're told they're not supposed to eat. Remember this? And yet, in that same place, the same time, there's this serpent, the evil one, the devil, okay, personified. And that serpent says to Eve, did God say you should not eat from this tree? And that's his first trick, right? Actually, the first trick of the devil is to insert doubt. Not that doubt's bad, but he inserts this sort of, hmm, did God really say that? And then, of course, the woman says, no, he said that. We can't eat from this tree. If we do, we'll die. And then remember, this is the second thing the devil does, and this is important. Verse 4 of Genesis 3, oh, you won't die? For God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, and you'll know good and evil. And, of course, they eat from the tree, and they do die. But here's the point. Did you notice what the serpent said there in verse 4? It's very subtle. Did God say you'd become like him? Did God say you'd become like him? And if you back that train up just a little bit, Genesis 1.27, you're going to find this truth. They are like God. They are made in the image of God. They're God's image bears. Let's make them man and woman in our own image. They are like God. See, we hear that the first sin of humanity is eating a fruit. It's, it's this sort of outward action. And we're not going deep enough, friends. Uh, a careful reading of Scripture reveals that it's actually an inward unbelief, something deep within us, not outward misbehavior, that is our root issue. Um, Adam and Eve believe the lies of the enemy, specifically the lie that they are not like God, that they don't bear God's image, that there's something fundamentally wrong with them, bad about them. And they're misshapen, they're twisted. And, and that's their first sin. It's not taking the fruit, that's an act of disobedience, but... It's not breaking a rule. God cares about rules. Don't hear me wrong here. But it's the inability to listen, to understand, and live out of the truth of who they are. That's the sin. That's the breaking of the relationship that they had with God that that causes them to retreat and go into shame and, and leave the garden. And the challenge for us, the application for us today, on this very little aside from Romans, is that we face the same challenge as Adam and Eve did millennia ago. In this, will we believe what God says about us as well as, as about all of humankind? Or will we make choices about what to do with our time, money, our bodies based on some other criteria, some other voice? Um, will we listen to the voices crying on the magazine stands that tell us we're inadequate because our body is not the same size and shape as that person? Or that we lack intimacy because we lack sexual appeal? Or that we lack success and worth because we, you know, if we can, we can get there if we just put 10 steps and one little pill, Right? That, that a black man is inherently a threat, as well as a Muslim ref- refugee, a conservative Republican is a narrow-minded bigot, a Democrat is the cause of every evil, evil we feel, uh, we're facing today. Will we believe those things? Or the voice of God proclaiming delight, forgiveness, freedom, wholeness for all people? Will we believe that or the other? What will we choose to believe today? That's the question. And, and, and why that's such a critical nuance in the definition of sin as we come to Romans 7 is what Paul says in verse 20. Now, if you, now I do what I don't want. If I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin dwelling within me. So here's, he says here that there's just sin, this unbelief, this twisted version of his self that's dwelling within his self. It's like spiritual schizophrenia. Do you notice this word dwell? It's a very, very important word. 
Um, in other words, evil and sin are not just things that act upon us from the outside, um, sort of like, uh, like a horror movie, right? Nor is it something that comes into us, temporary camps out, and if we just know enough about God and what to do in those situations, we can kind of shoo it away and get on with life. That's not what Paul says. It's at home in us. The word dwell means to inhabit. It's actually the same word that Paul uses for the household of God in Ephesians, the oikos. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like taking up residence in you, making a home with you. So uh, sin, evil, the unbelief that we, we all have around ourselves and our identity has the capacity to dwell in us, to make home in you, to reside there. It's deeply rooted, deeply, deeply rooted, deeper than you know. And as a result, because that the thing is living in you, and, and because Paul said earlier in Romans, remember this, that, that Christ is as well. <laughs> Christ is living in you. Uh, there's this deep splitness in our hearts, and we are stuck in that gap uh, between belief and unbelief, which most people, I'll just say, especially, ironically, the commentators, the theologians on this passage, has caused tons of difficulty for them. I don't know why. Maybe they're just thinking too hard about it. Most people deny, for example, uh, that Paul is speaking of his present experience. They're going, well, you know, Paul's talking about how he used to act and feel before he met Christ, you know? And he was a killer. He presided over the execution of prominent Christians. He's talking about his old self, but he's a new guy, right? Indeed, verses 7 to 13, if you read it again, he's talking in the past tense, right? But read verse 14 sometime, where he switches to the present tense. He's, he doesn't say, I, I don't understand what I did. I, I don't know what I wanted to do. He says, I don't understand my own actions. I, I can't do what I want to do. I can will the right, but I can't do it. All present tense. And that seems to indicate that Paul's talking about his present experience, seeing, saying, I see myself riddled with sin. It's dwelling in me, not different than before I encountered Christ and gave my life to Christ. Indeed, I see the capacity for evil within me right now, today, even though I have the life of Christ within me as well. And if you take that reading, which I think is the most plain reading, it doesn't require a lot of theological cartwheels, uh, that, that this passage is going to bug you. It's going to really bug you. Because it's, it's, it's been bugging people for years. Like, here's the reason why. There's this popular paradigm, in, I'd say in Seattle especially, that there's a bell curve of good and evil. You know the bell curve? A lot of us remember this from school. I was often on the low to middle part of the bell curve in school. Um, you, can, you know why, because I don't like to read. But anyway, there's a bell curve of evil between belief and unbelief when it comes to the human race. So most of us believe on one hand there's a small number of really spiritual people, um, giants, saints, who are just virtuous. They're super spiritual. These are the Mother Teresas, the St. Francis's, the Rosa Parks, the Desmond Tutus. They're unique. They're extraordinary. And there's just a few of them. And if only we could just aspire to be like them. So we put them on posters and we talk, we quote them, and, you know, I quote them all the time. And then we also believe there's a small number of really bad people, evil people, totalitarian dictators, genocidal maniacs, the Hitlers, the Popots, and thank God there's only a small number of them, right? And the rest of us are just somewhere in the middle of the bell curve. Like, we're the Lake Wobie Gunners. We're, we're all strong, good-looking, and just, you know, above average, right? We're basically good people, right? You're just in the middle. That's good. Paul absolutely destroys that whole paradigm, if that's your paradigm. He blows up the bell curve. He says, look where he is. He's on the evil side of the curve. What does he say? I'm unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For 
I, what I want to do, I don't do. I do what I hate, I do. <laughs> he's unspiritual. He's evil. He calls himself that. And he's Paul. St. Paul. The author of the majority of the New Testament. The founder of the church. Not just a good guy, a great guy. The Pharisee of Pharisees. So you see, by acknowledging that though I'm the best and I desire to do the best and live life to the fullest, I'm the worst. <laughs> and, and though I have the life of Christ in me, I'm filled with doubt and unbelief. And though I'm a leader, I'm desperately evil. I'm conflicted. He's smashing right through all of our conventional thinking and not giving license to sin, saying, hey, go live like hell. It doesn't matter. You know, have fun. He's saying... Even the very best people, even in the very, very best people, there's a core of evil, a capacity to do far greater things, far worse things than you could ever imagine. And it's hidden from you. It's dwelling in you. It, and in sometimes certain situations, it's stress, it's temptation, it's your marriage to a difficult person, it's a working relationship with a difficult boss, it's, it's a failure. Those situations can be a trigger. And the real wickedness, the real capacity for evil, which is in you, your, your self-centeredness, your self-absorption, your self-indulgence will just flare up and come out. And here's the deal. Paul's not trying to beat you up. This is not sinners in the, the hands of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards style. This is him just naming reality. Um, if you, you know the patron saint of Bethany, a good guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Remember this poem he wrote right before his death, Who Am I? Uh, let me just read a few verses from this. He says, this is, this is while he's in the concentration camp right before he's, he's killed. Who am I? They often tell me I'd step from this prison cell, poised, cheerful, sturdy, like a nobleman from a country estate. Who, off, who am I? They often tell me I'd speak with my guards freely, pleasantly, firmly, as if I had command. Who am I? I've been told that I suffer the days of misfortune with serenity, smiles, and pride, as someone accustomed to victory. Am I really what other people say about me? Or am I only what I know of myself, restless, yearning, sick like a bird in the cage, struggling for the breath of life, and though someone were chucking, as though someone were choking my throat, thirsting for words and closeness, shaking with anger and capricious, uh, t- uh, capricious tyranny, bedeviled by anxiety, awaiting the great events that might never occur, fearfully powerless. Who am I? That man or the other? Hmm. Who am I? And I think this question around who we are it shouldn't trouble you like, oh my gosh, what, what do I do? It should just be like a look in the mirror. This is like Paul's, I think, first look in the mirror. Like I, this is who I am. And it's, it's confession. With a, Bonhoeffer's confession, Paul's confession, is just a, it has a crisp reaffirmation uh, countering the view that evil and corruption, don't, they don't stem from the environment outside of us. They, it's, yeah, sin's all around us, all the time. Like, we're seeing the propensity for violence on, on our, in our society right now on sort of a massive scale with, you know, another shooting this week, too. Uh, in our complacency in our government to do anything about it, we're seeing it down in Southern California as the, the environment is, is being degraded, degraded, you know what I'm saying? And having these horrific consequences, you know? Thousands, tens of thousands of people losing homes. I mean, the rise of racism and nationalism and extremism sins all around us. And yet Paul and Bonhoeffer are just saying, it's also in our thoughts for revenge. It's also in our bitterness. It's also in our selfishness to take care of those in need all around us. I mean, just look at the number of homeless. That, that, and I 
drive by them all the time. Just kind of indifferent. Somebody else will take care of that. Um, It's in our lustful desires and greedy intentions. It's in those who we ignore and neglect, especially when those are our people. There's this gap between us, (laughs) who we've been created to be, and us, the sin that's within us. And, And Paul's after getting us through the gap, which is just spiritual freedom, saying there's a way through that, over that, beyond that. And yet, let me just show you real quick. There's a way that you might think you can get through it, that you can't, you must not, and then there's a way you will, okay? So does that make sense why the gap exists? That's the meat, sin. We live in a sinful world. We have sinful hearts. So let's move to the second thing real quick. Kind of what won't work against the gap? Because this is the thing most of us, I think, functionally, when we hear this, are like, oh, I know. This is what I'll do. Vision board. Goals. Boom, boom. Boom. And we, we approach life that way. So here, let me say this. You'll never cross the gap between what you know to do and what you actually do from unbelief to belief through willpower, through vision boards, through goals. You just won't, you'll never get there. Verses 7 to 12. You'll never, ever win the battle of sin by just trying harder. You will not do it. Which is one of the themes I think we miss because it's just such a complicated chapter when we read Romans 7. We miss it all the time. When Paul, so in these verses... Paul's talking about the law, right, repeatedly. And because he's a Jew, he's thinking of the Mosaic law, right? The Ten Commandments and then the other stuff. And, and the code of ethics and morals that sort of act as a scaffolding for his faith, okay, to keep it up. And I want to pause here because we're not Jewish, not probably ethnically Jews here. So there's a temptation to sort of check out. Jack said the meat is in the middle. I'm a... I'm a <laughs> You know, I'm gluten-free. I'm not going to listen to this. <laughs> He's not talking about me. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm free. Law doesn't apply to me. But here's the deal. He is talking about you, and you aren't free. And here's why. We all have law in our lives, whether we're religious or irreligious, Jewish or Gentile. It could be any law. It could be the Bible law that Paul is talking about. It could be the law of society. It might just be your conscience. Um, a sense of that you have of what's right and wrong. All of us have this. All of us. Even the youngest children have this. It could be nature or nurture. I don't know. But you may not be religious. You might be just a little bit religious. You have law. You have something that guides you, that governs what you should and shouldn't do. That's law. And the key for all of us, to some degree or another, is that this thing, the way it functions, is as an external set of requirements for living a good life. External. A set of rules, commandments, ethics, all, I'd say, external to, for us guiding, guiding us in living. And so how most people approach the law and the application of it is this way. They, with an enormous exercise of willpower, they apply that to their lives. We call this duty. We call this obedience. We call this virtue. Whatever you want to call, okay, what law is for you. The commandments. And what Paul says here in Romans 7 is that external behavior modification, like a strict application of the law into your life, do's and don'ts. Like if I just step here with a three-by-five card, do, don't. There's your sermon for the day. Go. It, well, I could, and the church would be a lot better, but you wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> You'd just be like, oh, this is not going well. So when, it, when we do that, when it comes to dealing with sin especially, which again, moving from unbelief to belief, does not work. And to illustrate this, Paul gives us a little autobiographical sketch in verses like 8 and 9. 
where he's talking about how he was a legalistic Pharisee before he met Christ. He says, I was, a, I was alive apart from the law, but then one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, came home and slew me. It killed me. So what he's doing here is he's telling about a time in his life, thinking about the commandments, it made him happy. He's like, man, I feel alive right now because I am keeping all the commandments. I'm going to the synagogue. I'm speaking all the time. I'm invited to lead and teach. Everything's great. I'm a good person. I'm, I'm alive. I must be doing good, right? And then Paul says that he began to think about the meaning of the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, the last one. And when the real meaning of that commandment came home to him, after he met Christ, it killed him. It slew him. The commandment, thou shalt not covet, devastated him. And he felt like he was actually spiritually dead. Way worse off than he was before. And here's why. I, he meditated on it. He, he came to realize what other people have realized, which is this, that this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that, that is actually internal, not external. It's internal. It goes right to the heart. All the other commandments are about they demand behavior. Don't kill. Don't lie. Don't cheat. You know, call your parents. Well, I see your parents are sitting with you. So there you go. But, you know, make sure you honor your parents. And so, but then this one comes along, and it's not about behavior. It, it sort of is, but it's talking about the attractions of your heart. That's what covetousness is about. It's, it's, what is your heart most attracted to? What's your heart fixed upon? It's talking about the motives and desires and passions of your heart. And remember what I said about sin, that it's deep within us. You see how these are connecting now? So when he realizes that the Ten Commandments are not just about what he does and doesn't do, they're not talking about behavior, but motivations, desires, he knew he was dead. He may have been, he may have been going to church, doing good, but he knew he was dead. That's to say he couldn't possibly save himself through effort. He never would. See, it's one thing to change your behavior. We, we do this all the time. Change your habits. There's books on it, shelves of books on it. But you can never summon up enough willpower to change the flow of your heart. You can't do it. Your heart flows in a direction. Um, it's, it flow, it's attracted to certain things. It longs for certain things. This is why when you see it, well, hopefully some of you were mar- are married now, but when you saw that person across the room, your heart just fluttered. Your heart flutters towards certain things. Um, you can't change the flow of your heart and just say, stop, heart. <laughs> it just doesn't work through sheer effort. And so when Paul realized that the Ten Commandments are actually about a, a heart issue, he realized he needed a new heart. And this is what the Bible talks about all the time. Human beings need new hearts. It's Ezekiel 36. I'm going to take out your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. When he, and when he realized that, he knew he needed something that can only come from God. He could never do this on his own. I can't take my heart out and give myself a new heart. Um, he was dead unless God came and just changed the currents of his heart, changed the directions of his heart. And, in other words, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, is you need a new heart. You all need new hearts. Um, actually, it's, it actually says something more. You need, uh, according to St. Augustine, you need a heart whose loves are reordered. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. Because the word covet means it's this old English word that we still use for some reason because it really is the only word that means what it means. It doesn't mean to want. It, it means to inordinately want, inordinately desire like a life-dominating craving or desire for something. That's what it means to covet. Um, so, for example, I love riding bikes. I love my wife. I love God. But those loves need to be ordered. If they're not ordered, then I'm inordinately wanting bikes. <laughs> you know? 
Or if I don't order my love for my wife Elizabeth correctly, I'm inordinately putting expectations on her that only God can fulfill, right? So all those things deserve to be loved, but when you get them out of order, um, that's what covetousness, that's when it becomes real. Um, There's an order, there's an importance to those things. And what's crucial is your heart, when it's in tune with reality, if you put the first things first, the most important things first, if you love God first, as the Bible tells us to, if you base your hope and happiness on God first, God alone, more than anything else, if you base your self-image, your significance, your security on God, and then allow other things to flow, if, if you love God first, the Bible promises that you will cross this gap. You will. You will not get stuck in the abyss of stuckness. <laughs> so Paul's saying to you that you don't need a bomb-proof ethic for living the good life. You don't need that. I mean, it's good, but you don't need a, a more strict moral code of conduct, somehow get right with God, and then get to heaven. That's not the gospel. And if that's what you've been told is the gospel, you've been told a lie. Paul is saying you need a new heart with reordered loves in tune with the nature of reality. And without that, you'll never cross this divide that you're in or you're facing. Because God's law and his love is not about external behavior. It's not about that. It's not about effort. It's not about obedience. It's about surrender. It's about rest. It's about opening your life and your heart to this, the presence of another who offers the gift of, of real life real life. Which brings us to the final thing today. I'll spend a little, just a little time on this, and then we'll invite the, the worship team up, okay? So that's how not or what not to do, okay? Don't just try harder. Don't, I mean, don't do, the vision board was fun, but it was depressing too. So how must we instead approach this gap? And this is the, the, the crux, the end, the thing we've all probably heard before, verses 21 to 25. It's, it's at the end of the chapter, When Paul says in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I want to do three things really, really quick, okay? That Paul offers as a way of approaching this abyss, this intractability of sin, and the powerlessness that we face to overcome it. Three quick things. Kind of take-homes for you. Number one, confess. That's what he does. First of all, what a wretched man I am. That's the first of all the 12-step programs. That's the first thing Paul says you should do. He doesn't say, if I try harder, I'll overcome this. Because you can't. You're powerless. And thus, the first step is just confess what a wretched man or human, human woman I am. Which is another way of saying I'm helpless, I'm weak, I'm powerless to save myself. Which, by the way, is not something that we're very good at today. You go outside these doors, you go to work tomorrow, you tell your boss, yeah, I'm not very good at what I'm doing. You're going to lose your job, probably. That's not going to go well for you. Um, but it's, abs- it's absolutely central to the gospel. Remember what Jesus says when, to Paul. In your weakness is my strength. In your weakness. Stop kicking against the goads, Paul. Stop fighting me. Admit that you're weak. And Paul does this, I'm wretched. <laughs> I'm wretched. In my powerlessness is Christ's power. In my confession and helplessness is Christ's help. That's the first thing, confess. Number two, help. That's the second thing. Who will rescue me? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Notice he doesn't say, I will rescue me. I'm here. (laughs) He doesn't say, it will rescue me. The law, I'll just go back to the law because I know all the commandments. And the 100... 
thousands of things other than that. This is a, he goes, who will rescue me? This is a significant move in our lives from I and it to who. In other words, he turns away from the things he thought would rescue him, his goodness, his morality, the law of God, which he calls spiritual and good, beautiful. And he says, he turns away from it and says, this is not self-rescue. This is who rescue, God rescue. He's trying to rescue himself. And he realizes, I can't do it. It's just not going to work. Um, I think this came home to me most graphically earlier in my life when I was with the Seattle Mountaineers and I was uh, on a climb with some friends and we're climbing my favorite climb up in uh, Mount Baker and we're actually coming down and there's, we're on a three-person rope team and I'm on the front of the team. I'm leading this rope and there's a, a guy in the back of the team a little bit less experienced than me and then there's a person in the middle of the team who is just smaller. So you always put the small person in the middle because <laughs> you never know, right? You don't want them saving you and you'll see why. Um, so, when, and the reason you're on a rope team, if you know mountaineering, is when you fall, there's steep ice, there's crevasses, and death, usually, if you don't have somebody to help you. So, we're climbing Mount Baker, and a member, the third member on our team, the guy behind me, I'm, and you're spread out, you're pretty far spread out, like 30, 40 feet from each other. So, you don't hear each other, and he slipped, he caught a cramp on, he slipped on steep ice, and he had dropped his ice axe. You're supposed to put the leash on your wrist, didn't have that, dropped it, and he's just flailing going like this, and just going, going. He's picking up speed. And I, at this point, hadn't heard him yet. But then he, he goes past the middle person and just takes her out. Um, so these two climbers, and then at this point, I, I kind of noticed something was happening. I look back. I'm like, oh, no, but I didn't say that. And uh, so you know what I did? I fell on my face, self-arrest, because I heard them fall. I knew they were coming. And uh, I, I just went to my training. I, I dug in. And it was maybe about three or four seconds before I felt the, the tug of the, uh, the harness on the rope and this, this long, elastic climbing rope um, pull on my harness. My body's being pulled, and I'm digging in. I'm digging in. I'm just freaking out. My crampons, I'm digging in. Every muscle in my body. And, and guess what? It worked. They, they went. They went. Whew. And then, you know, then I had a, a very honest conversation with this guy. Where the heck is your, and I didn't say that either, your ice axe. But this was a vivid reminder. That's the gospel. I mean, not that I'm Jesus, but that we, we cannot save ourselves. You are helpless to save yourself. Um, we need help. <laughs> this is hopefully why you're here. Uh, what John said earlier is that this is a, a hospital for the sick, for the wounded, for the people that, that are like, ah, I woke up today, I don't know. I'm going to try church. I'm going to try God. Because you need help. <laughs> you cannot save yourself. Who will rescue me? I hope you're here with that question. Who will rescue me? That's number two. Uh, here's the last thing. Thanks be. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice, I didn't say deliver me. In the Greek... In the NIV, I asked Kurt to say this because it's a little bit of a red herring. But uh, in the NIV, it says, thanks be to God through Jesus, or, who, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is actually not in the Greek. All it says in the Greek is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the reason that's significant, this is the crux, is Paul is facing his own helplessness. He's got his attention on God. Who will rescue me? And then he just snaps into worship. 
He just snaps into worship. That is a declaration of praise. Thanks be to God. And uh, that this is the secret to living a spiritually free lives, friend, to live a life in the midst of a gap. If you're stuck in this abyss of stuckness, and you know it's not going to work to try harder, to come, in the, to come into that gap in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your helplessness, and just say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Um, Paul isn't saying, God, fix me. I'm in the gap. Fix me. And then I'm going to come to Sunday and thank you. He doesn't say, when I'm cleaned up, when I'm right with God, I'll come to Sunday. He says, I'm helpless. Help. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then earlier this week, this reminded me of Psalm 51. If you know this psalm, it's David's lament of his own brokenness. He's caught, um, commits adultery, commits murder, breaks the commandments. He's stuck. And what does he do? At the very end of that psalm, read it sometime. That famous confession, a broken spirit, a contrite heart, you, O God, will not despise. It's all right there. I'm helpless. Who will rescue me? And the very end, the last verse, King David He's the, he writes all the psalms, most of them. He knows how to play music. He's a worshiper. He's a worship leader. He snaps into worship. He starts, God, prosper Israel. <laughs> do what you know how to do, God. He doesn't say, God, now fix me. <laughs> he says, a broken spirit, a contrite heart, you won't despise. I know who you are, God. It's all good. I know you, I know you want to fix me. Now I'm going to worship you. See, the key to a spiritually free life is appropriating Christ worshiping into your broken life. That's it. Don't wait to be fixed. Don't wait to get better. Don't wait to get it together. Switch to worship. It's an, this is an invitation to worship in brokenness. Um, I don't know how many of you, I certainly have friends that do this, that I don't see here for months. And then I find out the reason was their marriage was imploding. Uh, they had some sort of physical thing. They didn't want to be seen. Um, they're spiritually dry, and they sing, they hear the songs, and it's just like karaoke to them. They're like, ugh. And this is an invitation to, to come to worship with the mindset that I can appropriate Christ. It's not about the stuff. It's not about trying to get better. It's just saying, God, you're here. I don't connect with it all, but I'm going to worship you anyway. I'm broken. That's the ultimate way to live freely in the midst of this deep spiritual God. Just thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the way you fight sin, actually. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to worship. We have a couple songs left in this this service. Um, And I want to invite our worship team up. And uh, yeah, I I just want to invite us to with Paul, with David. (laughs) You just bring yourself. God, a broken spirit, a contrite heart, you're not going to despise. I'm coming to you right now as I am. I thought I had to get cleaned up to go to church today. And I'm talking about spiritually. Thanks for taking your shower and stuff. But, and I realized, man, I don't, I don't need to. I can just bring me because it's you. Who will rescue me? It's you. I'm here for you, to receive you and what you have to offer. And so I want to just invite us as we, as we sing these words and come to Christ this morning to receive from God what only God can give you at the point of your need. Uh, so in your own way, you know,
would you be mindful of the sin in your life, the brokenness, um, the gap that you're experiencing? And then mindful that you can rest and worship. You can be broken and God can still heal you and bring you toward himself. And it's not going to all happen today. That's the last thing I want to say. Don't expect like the sky to open up, you know, and like, wow, it might not. This is a, like Eugene Peterson says in one place, a long obedience in the same direction. I'm going to worship today and then tomorrow. You can worship tomorrow. And then you can worship again the next day and Sunday. You can do this. And it's a posture of rest and receiving. Okay, so let's do that. Let me pray. God, thank you that we are invited by you, uh, by Jesus and Matthew to, to bring ourselves to you, um, to come in our weariness, come in our brokenness and merely receive what you have for us. That's what this worship time is about, God, receiving what you have for us, bringing ourselves to you and allowing you to do the work. And so even if we don't sing these words, God, um, would you just tune our hearts right now in worship to what you are doing and saying so that we could be grateful, deeply grateful for that work. And it's in gratitude, God, that we worship. Pray in Christ's name we say amen.